You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So we're talking this, uh, yeah, in this season about the Lord's Prayer uh, and really spending a lot of time listening to the different ways and which Jesus teaches us to pray. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us to pray for is that we would come to the end, that we would come to the end of time and existence and reality, and that end is called the kingdom of God. Uh, would you turn with me in a Bible to Matthew chapter 6? We're going to be at verse 7. Matthew 6, 7. We're going to read the whole prayer. We're going to focus just on part of it, like we've been doing each and every week. Now, when you think about this uh, prayer being prayed all over the world all the time, uh, by most of us each and every week, it's probably worth spending time learning the words. Matthew 6, 7. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thy kingdom come. Can you feel it? It's a little bit closer even now. Like since... We started the sermon. It's a little bit closer. Not just because we prayed, but because the time is getting shorter. We are closer to the end than we were just a second ago. And even in our time and in our culture, which often forgets that uh, the linearity of time is this gift of the Christian story, we still kind of think that that's true. Not only do we think about origins, right, the Big Bang Theory and and evolution, we're weirdly obsessed with where we've all come from, even though that doesn't really matter for whatever reason. But we're also very concerned with where we're all going. And we're very concerned with the end. All of our science fiction points toward the end. Most of our movies point toward the end. And the end that we imagine for ourselves is ugly. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the movies and the TV shows that we've been watching recently, but apparently zombies are coming for us in the end. Right? It's just a matter of time before we've achieved great technological prowess. We've built this remarkable and amazing thing, but it, of course the computers will then kill us. We will invent remarkable and amazing robots. We'll change the world. These phones in our pockets going to be amazing. But then the robots will grow too advanced and then kill us. Eventually, right, Tom Cruise will not be able to stop the nuclear warheads. Eventually, we will bring down on our heads the winter that is coming. We have imagined for ourselves a horrible future, and it used to be really entertaining really entertaining to go to the movies and, and see some disease that wipes out all humanity. I can think of three movies off the top of my head that I enjoyed watching that essentially describe the world in which we live, but it's not funny anymore, and it's not entertaining anymore. I don't really like that I'm living, apparently, in the end of the world that we've all been imagining for a really long time. But in our culture, right, this, this apocalyptic ending this dystopian nightmare, this hellscape that we're all headed toward, and it's everywhere if you start paying attention to the stories we tell ourselves. It's not a good thing. 
It's just the end. But in the biblical story, apocalypse is a good word. It's a word about revelation. It's a word about God showing up. And yes, there's destruction involved, but that destruction is always of evil things. That destruction is always of the things that we don't want anymore, the things that we need to be gotten rid of. And so the Bible absolutely shares with us the pessimism about humanity, the pessimism about our own decisions, where even our best intentions will always lead to our own destruction. That is the story of the gospel in every way. But the Bible would say, but there's this God who will save us from ourselves. That's not just the message of Revelation. That's the message of the cross. That is absolutely the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will be saved from ourselves, saved from the terrible future we will create for ourselves, saved from the terrible present that we are currently creating for ourselves. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for the end of the world. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the end of the world. And I know a lot of us have been thinking lately, like, it feels like the world's about to end, so that doesn't, I didn't want to pray that way. I was hoping to pray, I was praying that the world wouldn't end. Like, it feels like with the election and everything that's going on lately in the news, like I'm just scrolling through doom all the time, and it's, it seems really bad, and the virus, and, and all the stuff that's just happened, like violence in the streets, and it just, it's crazy. And so I just, I was hoping the world wouldn't end. That's what I've been praying for lately. I want things to get back to normal. Right? That's, that's what we want. And the thing is, God is not interested in what you and I think of as normal. In fact, a lot of what we think of as normal is frequently characterized by evil and injustice in ways that maybe the Black Lives Matter movement is showing us, in ways that maybe some of our eyes have been open to if we've paid attention to what happens in the third world during a pandemic as opposed to what happens in our country during a pandemic. That in fact, normal is not necessarily a good thing. The status quo is not necessarily a good thing. And it's possible we're being this, given this gift. We're being given, a gift in, we're being given a gift in this time. We actually don't like our lives. We don't like the way that we've been living lately. And we'd really like something else to happen. We'd like another reality to break in and to save us from this. Now, this is the way the early church prayed because they weren't happy with their day-to-day -day life. They, they didn't live in some kind of earthly version of paradise that they'd created for themselves. They weren't living a nice middle-class life and sort of getting all their ducks in a row and eventually buying a house and getting the job and the career. And fix. These people were living a pretty hard life. And people all over the globe, in the third world and elsewhere, this is the way they pray every day. God, would your kingdom come? God, we want justice. God, we need food. God, for our children. God, would your kingdom come? And so you and I are being given a gift that we suddenly realize that we need Jesus. That we suddenly don't really like the way the world works and we would like the present version of reality to be turned upside down. And I would encourage you as you pray, not to pray for some better existence that used to exist before this, but a better existence that is coming, that is breaking in in the person, of work, person and work of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. I think a lot of the time, right, we know that the Bible talks about this kind of stuff. We, we know that it talks about repentance and heaven and hell and life and death and life after death and morality and all that stuff. And, and that stuff matters to us and we hear about it and then we kind of put it in a box and we fold it up and we put it away and then it's Sunday morning and we open the box again and it feels really nice or there are times that we're afraid or we feel lonely and we open it up and it feels really good but then we put it away because we got other stuff going on. We got to get to Whole Foods. We've got to, you know, 
you got to find that career. you got to find the person that you want to end up with and marry. And you're sort of dealing with the fact that your kids are getting older and you don't know what to do. And you're thinking about retirement and you're thinking about a house. And you're, there's just, we're building this tower. And it's, it's going to be so tall and it's going to be so good. It's going to be taller than any God you could ever imagine. And we know deep down there's a story about that in the Bible and that it didn't really work out very well for the people. But, you know, it's probably they just they made a mistake in the tower they built, and that's why it crumbled. And so I just I need to fix some stuff, and then this is going to work out. But we never, we never really like the sort of people who build an ark. Those people always get mocked. Right? The people who stand on street corners holding signs that say, repent for the kingdom of God is near, those people. They're crazy. Right? The idea that God's kingdom could be close by that it might happen tomorrow, that Jesus might come back immediately. No, we've got a lot of time. We've got like a lot of time to figure our stuff out, to live our lives. I'm sure Jesus is going to mess with somebody else later. I've, there's a lot of stuff that I've just, I've got things right where I want it in my closet. I'm sure Jesus isn't going to come back. This is my project. And it's look, I've got Marie Kondo's book, and I'm figuring it out right now. We're praying for the end of this world. That's what we're praying for, the end of the world. And this world could use an ending, honestly. Now, I know in our time, it's impossible to critique things without advocating for their known opposite. So it's impossible to critique the Black Lives Matter movement without accidentally advocating for police brutality or the Ku Klux Klan or systemic injustice. It's impossible to critique Donald Trump without being a gullible liberal who hates America and babies. It is impossible, I think, to critique the financial system in which we operate without being a socialist. It's impossible to critique the police without advocating for anarchy, impossible to critique the LGBTQ folks without advocating for oppression and injustice and violence, impossible to critique the church and evangelicals without being heretic. Right? In our time, it's very clear, us or them. Neither. We choose the kingdom of God. That's what we're praying. We're praying for God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is opposed to any and all other kingdoms. Anyone and everyone who would say, I have a version of justice, I will fix it. You know, our system works just fine. We just need to tinker with it a little bit. Anyone and everyone who would say, you know what, we're going to save the world and those people over there are so dangerous, you've got to vote for us. Those people over there, oh my gosh, they're so dangerous. But we've, we've got a plan. We've, we've, got a, we've got a system. We've got a government. We've got a kingdom. Our, our kingdom is for you. Join us. I would imagine that uh, the world in which we live, it's kind of like it's a basketball game, and there are, there's two sides. And they're playing, and people are scoring points against each other, and people feel really good about it. And there's some folks who are betting a lot on this game on the outcome of this game, on their team, the team that they're rooting for. And if Jesus were to show up in the middle of the game, all of a sudden, everyone would be clamoring for him to be on their side. People who weren't even sure they believed that Jesus exists would be clamoring for Jesus to join their team because they know that that would be the end of the game, that they would win. And Jesus, if he shows up in the middle of the game, is just going to walk right through the court and right out the door and say, follow me. And some people will go and some people will keep playing the game because they think it's more important that they win the game than they follow Jesus. That's what Jesus does in the Bible. There are people sitting at the table of the Last Supper who are mortal enemies, zealots, tax collectors, Pharisees, fishermen. It makes no sense 
the earliest church, it makes no sense. People who are parts of all sorts of other kinds of kingdoms come together and go, yeah, we're citizens of a completely different place. This is a prayer of allegiance. Not just a prayer for the end of the world, but a prayer of allegiance. Who do we belong to? Who is our king? And you can only have one king. That's how kings work. And I know we threw that idea away in the Boston Harbor with all the teeth. Uh, but the idea of king, right? In America, we don't like the idea of king. I want to be a king. You can be a king. You can be a queen. We can all be in charge of our own lives and of our own stuff. And that, that was kind of the goal. That everyone can be king. And that's part of the problem with following Jesus. We're, we're too democratic, maybe, to be Christian. We like the idea of being in charge and of electing a representative. And, you know, I, I kind of would love to hear Jesus' platform. I don't really know that he gets to be king unless he gives me sorts of the, the sort of things that I care about, the sorts of things that I like. And that's not how a king works. A king is a king all the time, not just sometimes. He's absolutely in charge. And so we have to do this very un-American thing. We have to say, I submit to you. We have to give up rights and power. That's not our thing. We have to just say, you're in charge, whatever you say goes, even if I don't like it. That's what it is to say Jesus is king. Uh, the phrase uh, Christ Jesus happens a lot in the Bible, which is weird to those of us who think of Christ as a last name, Jesus the Christ. But Christ isn't a last name. It's a title. It's a title. The, the, the name Christ is really just a, it's a Greek word that we just make into English. But it's a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, Mashiach. And that word means king. That's what we're waiting for, this, this son of David, this son of Jesse, who's somehow the Lord of David, his king, even though he comes later. The king, well, that God would be if God became a man. That's the kind of king we're talking about in Jesus, an absolutely trustworthy king, a king who, who knows what he's doing, a king who never makes mistakes, a king whose kingdom will actually be just actually be good. And that's what we're talking about when we say we want to follow Jesus. That's what we're talking about when we say we want to be a part of the kingdom of God. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying that Jesus would be king of us. First and foremost, of us. It's a prayer of allegiance. And when I say that phrase, uh, you probably remember in kindergarten with the hand over the heart looking at the flag. I don't know, do they still do that? Okay, cool. That happened when I was, I'm old. And, but they, that happened a lot when we were kids. And when, when I was a kid, the church had no problem with the Pledge of Allegiance, which is odd to me. It has the phrase under God in there, and I think that's why. This, by the way, I'm not about to say something very anti-American. But the Pledge of Allegiance as a thing is fascinating as someone who's talking about the kingdom of God. Because I can't imagine a more clearly idolatrous act than the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm going to stand and look at an object and talk to that object and declare my allegiance, my loyalty, my fealty, my submission to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. Now, I can tell you this, Isaiah and Amos would have a huge problem with that. Jeremiah would just flip out at language like that, that we would say things like that. And Jesus here is teaching us to pray in a very different way. I pledge allegiance, I pray allegiance to the cross of Jesus Christ and the kingdom for which it stands. One nation under God indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, that works a lot better when we're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. A lot better when we're talking about the kingdom of God in Christ. In fact, we're very confident that there will be liberty and justice for all. 
Now, I know that in our time there are people who say, well, if you follow us, if you, if you listen to us, we've got the right solution. We'll fix it. And deep down, even those of us who don't necessarily believe in God have a lot of trouble with that idea because we're suspicious. We're cynical about human beings. And we know that human beings are just fundamentally, fatally flawed things that our best intentions tend to turn into dictatorships and horrible oppressive regimes or corporations that ultimately end up doing as much damage, if not a lot more damage, than they do good. And so we're very suspicious of any offer. And that's the thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It teaches us that human beings are actually flawed and fallible. And, and so I think our culture in, in postmodernism and with all of its cynicism would agree. And then it says, but I've got a better way. What if there was a man who was really perfect? What if there was a God who came down and showed us the actual way to live our lives? and then who led us into a brand new kind of kingdom. We could be people who belong to that kingdom. And I know that this kind of thing, this, this idea, sounds really otherworldly, and this is where my atheist friends tend to make fun of Christianity, because we, we become these people who all of our eggs are in a basket that's somewhere else. Right? We're not that invested in the reality in which we live. We're not that invested in the situation in which we live. This is why Karl Marx can say Christianity is the opiate of the masses. And it's a fair critique, if we're honest. Because there are plenty of churches and plenty of Christians who go, you know, eventually Jesus is going to come back, so I don't really have to worry about the fact that there are people starving. Eventually Jesus is going to come back, so I don't really have to worry about, I don't know, pollution or whatever. Eventually Jesus is going to come back, he's going to burn this whole thing up anyway, so who cares about the world in which we live? But that's not what Christianity says. That's just what people who've misunderstood Christianity might say. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and a pastor in Germany uh, when the Nazis were around. He was a real thorn in the side of the Nazis. And they killed him. And just before he died, he sent a letter to his friends. So he, some of the last words he ever wrote were, um, this is the end, uh, but for me, the beginning of life. Now that is an otherworldly sentence. That's somebody who believes, genuinely believes, that we're going somewhere. That the kingdom of God is coming. But he's not this otherworldly guy that doesn't care about reality. Because the Nazis wouldn't have killed him. The Nazis killed him precisely because he was such an otherworldly person. Precisely because he genuinely believed that there was this kingdom of God that was coming, precisely because he was always praying for the end of the world, precisely because he had declared his allegiance to a completely different thing, he was so dangerous to authoritarian power, so dangerous to people who would dare kill the Jews, so dangerous to those who would murder gay folks and disabled folks, because he believed, actually, in the kingdom of God coming in Christ. And what Jesus says is there's this kingdom that's coming. And the first will be last, and the last will be first. And the people who usually win in the world that we live in, the dictators, the tyrants, the abusers, the rapists, those who would put people into slavery, those who get away with things in the night, those who are powerful, those who are wealthy, those who are in the majority, those people in the kingdom, they lose. And those people so used to winning that they don't want the kingdom to come. 
But there's this whole other group of people, those who mourn, those who weep, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are poor and widow and orphan and oppressed, those who are alien and immigrant and stranger, those who are illegal, those who are in minorities, those who have no power, those people will be first. There's this whole other kingdom and it's coming. It's already come to some degree in the personal work of Jesus Christ because when the king came the first time, the kingdom really begins to break its way into our world. But the king is coming back. And so you and I who have declared our allegiance, you and I who pray every day for the end of the world, we begin living like citizens of a different kingdom. That's what happens. We live like we're citizens of a different kingdom. I live with people who have spent the last two years in a completely different country. And they've picked up the language of that country. They say weird things like bin the rubbish instead of throw the trash away. They say strange things like, I'm going to fill up the car with petrol. And that's an odd thing. And I always have to, it, it makes my brain change. And they go, wow, America is such a weird place. And they've lived here their whole lives, but they've, they've been gone for a couple of years. And now they're just citizens of a different kingdom. And you and I are like this. We have to be like this. If we're really going to be people who believe in the kingdom of God, we become strangers in our own land. Like people who have green cards and come from a completely different place, and we say, oh, that's weird. Look how the Americans talk to each other. Oh, that's weird. Look what the Americans do with politics. Oh, that's weird. Look what the Americans spend their whole lives chasing. Oh, that's weird. Look what the Americans value. But not us. No, we live by the values of the kingdom of God. We live by the rules of the kingdom of God. We live as though we already belong to another place that we are absolutely headed toward. That is absolutely coming right now. We're closer to it than we were at the beginning of the sermon. Closer now than we were. Every minute that goes by, we're getting closer and closer and closer to something that Jesus promised us, that the king would return and that the kingdom would come back, and that heaven and earth would meet, and that sorrow and suffering would be no more, that he would wipe every tear from our eyes. That you and I, with unveiled faces, would see the glory of God. That we who see in a mirror dimly would see face to face, that we would know fully, even as we are fully known. That those who cry out for rest would find it. That those who cry out in their anxiety would find peace. That those who desperately, desperately, desperately long for God to finally be in charge would live in a world where he is king. And so as citizens of this different kingdom, we talk about this kingdom to everyone we meet, but we represent it to everyone. We don't just pray for it. We, we actually we don't just preach it. We, we actually live it out. And you can tell a lot about people by the way that they pray. All right, a person praying that their house wouldn't burn down while it's actively on fire, but they never reach for the hose. That's a person who maybe thinks about God in a way that I, I think God tells us not to. A person who prays for the homeless, but then also invites them to lunch and sits with them and learns their name and actually prays for these people with them. That's a very different way of, of praying. Right, there are people who pray uh, that that their family lives and their marriages would be whole and healed, but they don't really invest in their marriages or their family lives. They just sort of hope that God's going to fix it all for them magically. And then there are those who really in invest in what God has said about how we live our lives and who we're supposed to be. We don't just 
pray for this. We actually begin to embody this prayer. We say, first and foremost, God, be king of me. The kingdom of God would, would really begin to reign in my body and in the sphere of influence that I have and in your body and in the sphere of influence that you have and that we would be these little walking embassies and ambassadors of the kingdom of God, that we would begin to show these people who live around us that there is actually a hope for the future, that we know who it is, not just where it is and when it is and what it is, but who it is in Jesus Christ. And I know that can be strange and that can be uncomfortable. It's particularly weird in the time when everyone's circle is so tight, that we're only letting certain people in and other people are only letting certain people in. So we'll have to be very countercultural people in a pandemic who both care about science and also about our neighbors. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was a, a pastor and an evangelist and a missionary in India a long time ago, and a really wise guy, and I've learned much from his life. But when he came to India as a missionary, he was this pastor from Britain, and they said, we, we, we do street preaching in India. And he said, yeah, I'm not sure that I do street in India. That's just weird. Because he was from Britain, it was this really weird idea, and he's, they're like, no, 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 the Indians. He said, no, this is, this is what we need to do, and this, this actually really matters to these people. And Newbegin said, that sounds really weird and uncomfortable, and sure enough, it was really weird and uncomfortable, and there was plenty of hostility and plenty of strangeness, and people would debate them on the streets, and people would really deal with those ideas and say, well, this, this feels like colonialism to us. But then some people would get really interested in those ideas. Evangelism doesn't always work out great. Sometimes people don't really like you. Some of the things you're afraid of actually do happen. But sometimes amazing things happen in the midst of it. And he said, look, the value of street preaching may be questioned. And the answer which I gave in my own mind was that the people listening to us knew that we were also the people who taught their boys and girls in the schools and cared for their sick in the missions. So that preaching was not disembodied words, but it had some flesh to it. I don't think that street preaching or wandering strangers is likely to bear much fruit in a place like this. But when people have earned their right to be heard by their service to the city in a school or a hospital, the public testimony will carry weight, especially those who themselves have learned the story of Jesus in a mission school. Thus, the institutional work gives weight to the preaching, and the preaching gives weight to the institutional work. What matters is that word and deed are not separated. What matters more is they're seen to flow from the center where Jesus Christ is witnessed to and confessed. We are already missionaries in this city, you and I. Nurses, doctors, teachers, architects, schools, administrators, folks who just happen to be working in the legal profession, folks who work in government, folks who are still figuring out exactly what God's calling them to do but are working our way in. We're already missionaries to this city. We already are earning the right to be heard. The question is whether we're going to speak. We're earning the right to be heard, hopefully, each and every day, but whether we're going to speak about the kingdom of God that we've heard proclaimed to us, the kingdom of God that we preach for each and every day. And the more that we pray about the kingdom of God, the more we pray about it each and every day, that we pray for the end of the world, that we pray our allegiance, that we try to live this out, the more frustrated you're going to become. The more you pray this prayer, the more frustrated you'll become that Jesus hasn't come back yet. The early church, they got really frustrated because Jesus hadn't come back yet. People throughout time have grown really frustrated because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And the more frustrated you become, the better. Because you will long for God's kingdom all the more. You'll actually start to pray the way they pray in the Bible when they say, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, do we have to wait? Come, Lord Jesus. And we'll no longer be as enamored of our projects and our plans and our schemes. We'll constantly be thinking, you know what, I just hope that Jesus comes back today. And we'll live each day as though this might be the last day. 
because we know that we're closer to it now than we were at the beginning. We're closer to it than any of the times I've mentioned it before. It is coming slowly and steadily. And the amazing thing about the way that the kingdom comes, Jesus tells us over and over again, is it's growing among us. It's not just that it came in Jesus, and it's not just that it will come in glory when Jesus returns, though that will absolutely happen. But it's moving in your life and in my life right now. Uh, there's a, a time lapse of a bean seed that's going to come up behind me, but I'm going to read a parable of Jesus uh, while we see it. This comes from Mark 4. And Jesus also said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable will we use for it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all the shrubs. It puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is hypnotic. One of the reasons it's so interesting to watch is you've tried to grow things before and it doesn't grow this fast. You've put something in the ground and nothing happens and you can't see what's happening under the ground. And so you sort of in faith keep watering it and keep hoping and then maybe you see a little bit of green and you wonder, is the kingdom starting to move? But when it's sped up like this, all of a sudden we begin to see that not only does it take days for a seed even to break ground, but it takes time even for leaves to develop, let alone fruit. But you realize it's been growing all along. See, when you take care of a plant like this, you begin to wonder, am I doing anything? Is anything happening? I'm showing up each and every day, and like it's a little bit green, and maybe it's, maybe it's bigger than it was yesterday. But the only way you can really tell that it's grown is at the end, when you're looking back, when you suddenly see what's happening. And so this time lapse helps us to see what happens in the time in between. That actually something is at work, something is growing, and something is at work and something is growing in you and me right now. Something is at work, something is growing in our world right now. And we're closer to it now than we were at the beginning of this sermon. We're closer to it now than we were a year ago. And so while it may look in our time like nothing's really happening, what we know, what Jesus tells us, is that there will come a day when all of a sudden this great kingdom will be like a giant tree that everyone and anyone can take their place in, can find shade in. And it's growing in you and in me right now. It grows every time we pray this prayer, thy kingdom come. It grows every time we step out into the world and we declare our allegiance, not to all of the other kingdoms that would ask for it from us. It grows every time we as God's people in our day-to-day -day lives bear witness to the hope that we have that there will come a day when Jesus returns, that humanity is not left to its own devices to destroy itself, but that Jesus will come back, that we are heading more and more each and every minute toward God's kingdom, and it's coming even now.